So let us read responsively, Lord's Day 11, question and answers 29 to 30. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because he saves us from our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who look for salvation or security in saints in themselves or elsewhere really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No. Although they boast of being his, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for their salvation. And now the scripture reading from John Chapter 14, 5 through 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would have known my Father as well. From now on, You do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. So far, the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it as we consider it this evening. And our topic this evening, the sermon title is our one and only Savior. So we're still making our way through the Apostles' Creed and looking at the different articles of faith that we hold on to, that we lift up in confession. Last couple weeks, we looked at what it means to believe in God the Father, the Lord Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We looked at those truths, and now we're on this part, uh, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so the main topic tonight, we can say, is the exclusivity of the gospel. Perhaps you've heard that term, the exclusivity of the gospel. That is, that salvation is found only and exclusively in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Peter says in Acts 4, 11 to 12, when he was preaching, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name save Jesus. He is our only Savior. His only salvation found in him. There is no back door or side gate to get to God or enter into his kingdom. No other religious figure can give you entrance or access to God. There's no secret tunnel to sneak your way into glory. Only Jesus. There's only one way to God, and that is by faith in the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is the great gatekeeper, sort of at the fork, at the end of the road of life itself. 
with two paths, one leading either to eternal separation from God's blessedness in the place of unending death that we call hell, or into the new world of love and life eternal. And only those who trust in Jesus Christ as their one and only Savior will be granted entrance and access freely into God's eternal kingdom. So again, as I mentioned, we refer to this teaching as the exclusivity of the gospel, that God the Father excludes, therefore, all other pretenders and their respective followers. So, for example, uh, the philosopher Plato and his pupils, they are excluded. That is not a way to God. Buddha and his followers are excluded. That is not a way to God. Muhammad and all Muslims are excluded. Not a way to God. The Pope, even, and the Papists who follow him are also excluded because they twist and distort the true gospel. Now, why is this? I know that's a radical and even offensive thing to say. Is it because everything in those religions are false and evil? No, no. There are actually lots of true and good things that can be found in other religions. Otherwise, they would have no appeal or apparent validity to them, right? Why then are they excluded from salvation in God's kingdom? It is because they do not embrace Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. All who trust in other saviors beside Jesus Christ alone, trusting either in themselves, other gods, or saints, they are excluded. So salvation, we find, is in Jesus alone and nobody else. And our Heidelberg Catechism here is drawing our attention to this fact, uh, even by pointing out Jesus' name. His name has significance, and it points to the reality that Jesus alone has the power to save. So Jesus, that name, it comes from, well, just kind of a, a history of the translation or transliteration of the name itself, but in Hebrew, and in Aramaic, his mother, Mary, and his father, Joseph, probably called Jesus Yeshu, Yeshu, there around in the house, Yeshu, Yeshu, which was short for Yeshua in Jesus' day. And Yeshua, as a Hebrew name, is rooted in the Hebrew verb to save or to deliver. So this means that the eternal Son of God, when he took on his human nature, was conceived in the womb of Mary and then born, he took upon himself this name, this human name, which means Savior, Yeshua. Why? Because that's what he came to do, to save his people from their sins. And that's exactly what the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, 21. She, referring to Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. So this is significant, the fact that he receives this title, this name, Savior, because in the Old Testament, like we saw earlier in the call to worship, this title, Savior, is reserved for the Lord God himself and him only. Remember what we heard earlier, Isaiah 43, 11 says, this is the Lord God speaking, I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. There is no Savior apart from me. 
And yet Jesus is taking on this title for himself. And so as we saw a few weeks back, right, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are each called Savior. We saw that in Titus 3. So each are called Savior, but they are not three Saviors, but there is only one Savior. There are three persons, yet not three gods, but one true God. And those three distinct persons are coexisting, eternally united in the one essence of the Godhead. And so Jesus, Yeshua, is our Savior. He is the one who is called Savior. He is God in our human flesh, the one who came to save us from our sins. And now here, in the passage we looked at in John 14, we see that Jesus is talking to his disciples right before he makes his way to the cross about how to get to the Father, how to get to God, how to arrive. Now, the fact that he's talking about a way to the Father implies something. It implies that we have lost our way, right? It implies that we have gone wayward. We've gone astray from God, and now we find ourselves separated from him, alienated from him. There is, in a sense, a big, ugly ditch between humanity and God. And we all realize this in different ways. All humans from around the world recognize and can agree together that humanity is not what it should be. Almost everyone recognizes the brokenness in humans, in society, and the evil that exists in each and every one of us in our hearts. So we can all agree in a sense that we are in need of saving. And so we need a way. We need a way to God. And each religion in the world presents a kind of way of making amends with God and creation, trying to find unity and harmony with creation, getting back into an order and a right relationship with God and creation. But usually, almost, well, in every other case except Christianity, the way that is presented by other religions is a way of strict obedience to rules or a high standard of living. We can think of Islam and their five pillars or the Dharma of Buddha, the teachings and the strict obedience to that, or the Jewish rabbinical tradition trying to uphold the entire Mosaic law in order to win God's favor. And we can also think of the Roman Catholic Church as well with its sacraments and traditions and its whole system of trying to climb the ladder and obtain enough righteousness in order to please God. And so these are all different ways that other religions try and present the way to God. And it's important for us to always remember what sets Christianity apart from every other religion, sets it apart as distinct. The way of Christianity is not a set of rules for us to follow. The way of Christianity is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the way. It's not a set of rules to follow. It is the person, Jesus Christ, who is the way. As he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And that's what Jesus says to his disciples here. And of course, his disciples are confused. Where are you going? How are we going to get there? And again, Jesus tells them clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, only through Jesus Christ. He is the way. And in that sense, we find that Christianity is truly 
distinct, truly different from every other religion. He did, in fact, naturally. Jesus gave teachings and laws for us to obey. But he emphatically says here and elsewhere that the only way to God and to entering into his kingdom is not by our own striving, not by our own obedience, but rather by faith in him. Another passage where Jesus refers to this is in John 6, 28, when people ask Jesus, what must we do to do the works that God requires of us? In other words, what must we do in order to enter into God's kingdom? How does Jesus reply? He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, to believe in me is what he's saying. Jesus is the way and there is no other way. Now, Philip at that point, after hearing that, is still confused and he seems to get in a way frustrated. Uh, I read into the text with Jesus's lack of clarity on this. And so he asked Jesus, just show us the father, please. Just come on, that will make it easier for us. That'll simplify it. Just show us the father. How does Jesus respond? He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? The words I say, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus is saying to see him, to behold the face of Jesus, to know Jesus is to see the Father and to know the Father. How so? Well, we realize as John in his whole gospel is trying to point out and show us that the person of Jesus is the maximal, visible, and tangible expression and manifestation of God, the invisible God. You cannot see a better, more clear vision or manifestation of who God is than to look at the person of Jesus Christ, what he said and what he did for us as well. So we cannot see We cannot see God's essence. We cannot see him as he sees himself. Nobody can see God in his being and still live. We need to remember that the fullness of God's being is entirely hidden from us because we are limited by our own eyes and by our finite minds. We can only behold so much color and take in so much light, right? And God is brilliant in his beauty and his majesty and his light. He hides in inaccessible light, Scripture says. It's fascinating to consider that even other animals have more cones in their eyes and they're able to see far more colors than we can as humans. So, for example, bees and butterflies have four-color receptor cones and they can see an amazing spectrum of colors, including ultraviolet colors that we cannot see. Isn't that pretty crazy? That's cool. If we cannot behold the full beauty of creation itself, well, how much less can we behold the full beauty and grandeur and splendor and majesty of God as he truly is in himself? So we can only, only see God in his infinite being through the person of Jesus Christ manifested to us and revealed to us in the word. So to try and see God apart from his promises and apart from Christ is in fact what Martin Luther, the reformer, called a theology of glory. 
trying to go for a theology of glory, commenting, commentating on uh, Psalm 51, Luther writes this on this point. He says, Let no one therefore interpret David as speaking with the absolute God. He is speaking with God as he is dressed and clothed in his word and promises, so that from the name God, we cannot exclude Christ, whom God promised to Adam and the other patriarchs. We must take hold of this God, not naked, but clothed and revealed in his word. Otherwise, certain despair will crush us. This distinction must always be made between the prophets who speak with God and the Gentiles. The Gentiles speak with God outside his word and promises, according to the thoughts of their own hearts. But the prophets speak with God as he is clothed and revealed in his promises and word. This God, clothed in such a kind appearance and, so to speak, in such a pleasant mask, that is to say, dressed in his promises, this God we can grasp and look at with joy and trust. That's amazing. Uh, quote there about how God presents himself to us clothed in his promises, clothed in his grace through his word. And it is only through his word and specifically now through Christ himself in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen that we can actually see and understand who God is. So as we look back to the text in John, this was truly an ignorant request of Philip He was pursuing a theology of glory, a vision of the absolute God, instead of the God as he has revealed himself in his word and promises, instead of the gracious manifestation of God right before him, clothed in the humanity of Christ. He missed it. He wasn't seeing what God had given him, and he should have known better. In particular, by knowing and seeing Jesus, he should have realized that he had already come to know and see God more clearly than the prophets of old had. More than Moses, who had a rare glimpse of God's back as he passed by him. More than Elijah, who heard God's whisper in the cave. More than Jacob, who in the middle of the night wrestled with the angel of the Lord. Philip and the other disciples followed, listened to, and sat down and ate with Jesus, in whom the whole deity dwells bodily, God incarnate. They should have known better. The Son is in the Father, as he says, and the Father is in the Son. The two persons plus the Spirit are one, three in one. And Jesus points to two different evidences, two different testimonies to validify this huge claim that he is making about himself. If anyone stands up and claims that they are one with God, That is a massive claim. You better have reason to back it up. And he does. He points to his word and to his works, to his word and his works. All that he taught with authority and truthfulness, plus all that he did, the healings, the signs, the wonders, they all pointed to the reality of who he claimed to be. God Almighty, our one and only Savior. Not a way, a truth a life among many. No, the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other Savior beside him. And nothing else solidified, verified, and locked in this claim that Jesus made about himself, but the last and great final work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. 
his sacrificial love and then rising again bodily from the dead into everlasting life verified everything that Jesus taught, everything he claimed about himself and all that he promised to us as well. So if Jesus rose again from the dead and we believe he has risen, indeed he is our one and only Savior. And we are to look to no other for salvation, either in whole or in part, except in Jesus alone. As the Catechism says, he is either a perfect, complete Savior or no Savior at all. And here at that point in the Catechism, it's important for us to remember that the Heidelberg Catechism here is a historical document. And so there is a historical context and it was written uh, in a particular time and, and according to a, an occasion and circumstances. The Reformers, the Protestant Reformers, were defending their view of salvation as they read it and interpreted it from the scriptures over against the Roman Catholic view and their practices. So what was Rome's, a Roman Catholic uh, official view, what is it today about salvation? Well, this is from the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is still what the church, the Roman Catholic Church believes today. <clears throat> it states this, the treasury of the church is the infinite value which can never be exhausted, which Christ's merits have before God. They were offered so that the whole of mankind could be set free from sin and attain communion with the Father. In Christ, the Redeemer himself, the satisfactions and merits of his redemption exist and find their efficacy. We'll pause. So good so far. That's good. That's great. We can affirm that. Ah, but sadly, they press on and they add more. They add more to this treasury of merits. It says, continuing, this treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. Ah, in the treasury too are the prayers and good works of all the saints, all those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ, the Lord, and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. And so they added to the mix. They added to Christ's merits, the merits of the saints and the blessed Virgin Mary. And in response to this, the reformers and we with them say, no, no, even our righteous deeds or those of Jesus' own blessed mother Mary are but filthy rags when compared to the perfect righteousness of Christ. To try and add to Christ's righteousness with our own is a great offense to him. Now, in the years 1545 and 1563, the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent, under the authority of the Pope, gave an official response to the Protestant Reformation. And in that document, the Roman Catholic sect condemned to hell the heresy of the gospel of God that we hold on to as dear. They anathematized the Reformed view of salvation of sinners resting only upon the imputed righteousness and merits of Christ, which sinners legally receive by faith alone in Christ alone. They condemned that, anathematized it. And this is what they say in Canon, in Canon 2 on justification, it reads this. If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and remains in them 
or also that grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God, let him be anathema, that is, accursed. So they wanted to add to the imputed righteousness of Christ that comes outside of us. They wanted to add to that the work that the Spirit produces in us. So the righteousness that the Holy Spirit is is working within us inherently inside of us, uh, such that a person, according to Rome, is justified by the merits of Christ and also their cooperation with God's grace. So they add their own righteousness and merits to what Christ did. Not seeing Christ's righteousness as sufficient, they look to themselves. And so what they condemned here is actually a really good summary of what we hold to as our position, that our entire salvation depends upon the sole imputation and accreditation of Jesus Christ's merits to us. Entirely upon what he has done for us, not what we do in response. We do not trust in our own selves cooperating with grace and God's Holy Spirit. That is a different way. That is not the way of Christ. That is the way of works according to the law. We trust in the way that is the person of Christ and his work for us. He alone can save us with his shed blood and his perfect righteousness. So Jesus alone is our all-sufficient treasury of merits. His blood and righteousness are more than sufficient to atone for all our sins and make us right before God. And it is an offensive and shameful thing to try and add to the perfection that Christ has already achieved, accomplished, and given to us freely. Think of this. It would be, a, it would, uh, be very offensive, and you would not do this, right? You would not go to a five-star Michelin restaurant and receive a meal prepared by the chef and then slap ketchup onto it. That would be an offense, an egregious offense to that chef, to his craft, to his skill that he put into it. And so, likewise, don't try and slap on your lackluster obedience to your standing before God. That is an offense and shameful offense to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient and perfect. So stop it. Stop it. Don't trust in yourself any longer. Trust in Christ alone, only him. Trust in him and his words when he declared on the cross, it is finished, it is finished. God forbid that we look to any other save our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.